The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Charles, or Chip, Osborne. He is the president of Osborne Organics and founder of the Organic Landscape Association. Mr. Osborne has over two decades worth of experience in creating safe, sustainable, and healthy athletic fields and landscapes through natural turf management and 45 years plus experience as a professional horticulturalist. As a wholesale and retail nurseryman, Mr. Osborne has firsthand experience with the pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides that are routinely used in landscape and the horticultural industry. Personal experience led him to believe that there must be a safer way to grow plants. His personal investigation, study of conventional and organic soil science practices, and hands-on experimentation led him to become one of the country's leading experts on growing sustainable, natural turf. He is a regular lecturer for the Northeast Organic Farming Association. He is a board member of Beyond Pesticides, which is where we met. And he is chairman of the Marblehead, Massachusetts Recreation and Parks Department. He is also a national speaker on turf management for athletic fields and landscapes. Chip, welcome. I'm delighted to have you with me. Well, thank you, Melinda. It's wonderful to be here and have a chance to talk about the subject. Well, I know that you have in your bio spoken about athletic fields and landscapes, but I think we need to focus on home gardening. And I think that the COVID-19 pandemic really forced a lot of people to rethink where they get their food. We have things called immunity gardens now where people are growing more of their food in home gardens. We also have children playing outside rather than saying going off to different places because of the pandemic. And I know personally, I had an experience where some neighbors used a turf management company, and I experienced drift damage on my native plants as well as my own home vegetable garden. So I'm hoping that you can help us understand a little bit about what we can do differently to have a healthier community and home garden. But first, let me start with a basic question. How did you become interested in horticulture? I became interested in horticulture as a 22-year-old, and it was sort of by accident at the time. I had another career that was sort of charted out for me in my mind, but I ended up going to work for a small local greenhouse and nursery operation and fell in love with it. And a couple of years later, my dad and I bought it. I started that, as I said, when I was 22. And at that time, I was a licensed pesticide applicator because I was taught by the university and cooperative extension that I couldn't manage anything from a horticultural perspective without a heavy reliance on synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. And I did that for about 20 plus years. And then the light bulb went off and I realized that I was on a pesticide treadmill and treating symptoms and never solving problems. And that's exactly what we're doing out in the home landscape. 
my mission then to go public, you might say, back in the mid-1990s, I felt that if I could do this in my business, then I would work to educate the homeowner and general public, municipalities, on how they could do it too. Because one of the things that you just mentioned, Melinda, is very true in the era of COVID. We're spending so much more time in our landscapes. And those weed and feed products, which we'll talk about in a little bit, we intersect with them so much more when we're out in the landscape, and especially children. So my driving factor from the beginning that pushed me out into the public sector was the fact public and children's health, but an emphasis on those grass areas that intersect where our children play. And pets, too. I don't think people realize that some of the illnesses and even cancers that we see in our beloved pets could be related to their exposure to some of these lawn chemicals. That's very true. Early on, back in the early 2000s, I shared a speaking podium with a veterinarian, Dr. Diana Post, who is also the sort of the founder of the Rachel Carson Council in Maryland. And she's a veterinarian, and her focus was pet cancers. And the direct, as hard as it is to make a straight-line correlation within the human population that chemical A causes disease B, it was really pretty easy to make a direct straight-line correlation between what we are using to grow grass and what was happening to pets out there as they played on those grass areas. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned how people get their information about using these chemicals. And I know that when I've spoken to the applicators in my own neighborhood, they have assured me that these things are safe. Maybe you want to stay off the lawn when the product is wet, but after it dries, it's all safe. Is that true? Unfortunately, that's not true. And that's marketing and the idea that safe when used as directed or safe when dry to the touch is something that the industry just puts out there. The EPA itself acknowledges that we can't even say pesticides are safe when used as directed because the basic premise is that pesticides are poisons and are all poisons to some degree. When we're told that it's dry to the touch, think of something called a half-life. And a half-life is the length of time that it takes for one half of the active ingredient or that the, the, the portion of that pesticide that is designed to kill the pest, how long it takes for half of it to go away. If it's dry to the touch, you know, that's a matter of hours, we're talking, or, or less. The little yellow flags that go on our lawns say 48 hours generally in most states. But what if that half-life is between 10 and 70 days or longer? that it takes 70 days for some common lawn care chemicals for half of it to go away. That's 140 days for it all to go away. So the quick short answer is that no, they are not safe when dry to the touch. And it's hard to compete with the information that we get from the providers. So for example, in my community, and I know different communities have different providers of these services, in Columbia, Missouri, which is where I'm based, I get mailings from True Green, which ironically used to be called Chemlon. And I guess people decided that that wasn't such a great name because people kind of didn't like the idea of putting chemicals on their lawn. But I don't think that the formulations have changed, just the name has changed. So I get information in the mail from True Green, I get information from Atkins. And a lot of it is the same in terms of it's a safe, healthy way 
to have a beautiful lawn. True Green says that they start with their healthy lawn analysis and they have PhD developed plans. So getting back to your point about you've got training from the Extension Service and the land-grant universities, how do we approach this kind of information that seems so trustworthy? Well, the information, and it comes down from the top, and the top is our cooperative extensions and the educational system, sort of the, the research side of things for fertilizers and how they work in the landscape. And then we have the US EPA and their regulations and guidelines that generally are involved with the toxicity of pesticides and their registration process. Just very quickly, let me say that because a product has an EPA registration number does not mean that it is safe to use. A very long answer can be shortened down into something on the legislative or the legal side of pesticides, and that is the overarching legislation called FIFRA. And within FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, which, by the way, was written in the 1970s and we're still operating on statute that's close to 50 years old, it's based on a model of risk assessment. In other words, risk versus benefit. And if the risk outweighs the benefit, we don't see the pesticide on the market. But if the benefit outweighs the risk, we do. We know from talking with the EPA that that benefit can be economic. It can be a financial benefit to the registrant, or it can be a benefit by no weed in your lawn. So we take and we begin to try to quantify those benefits. Well, risk assessment is based on acute exposure. And we're, we're operating on science that says increasingly stronger doses will kill a laboratory animal. And then that value is extrapolated uh, to the human population as a 150-pound male, not a woman, not an infant, not a child, not a toddler. Arbitrary, 150-pound male. It, so it's a high dose. It's an acute exposure, high-dose toxicity. What we're finding out now through independent third-party science is that the low dose is more toxic to developing children. So repeated low-dose exposures are significantly more harmful than one acute dose. So the EPA, the way they register it and all of that is totally old school. So therefore, we can simply make the statement that they are not safe when used as directed and because it carries that registration number, should be no implication of safety, and any company that portrays it at that is doing it strictly for marketing purposes. Hmm. Boy, there ought to be a law against these marketing brochures because they are so dangerous to public health. It's also difficult, Chip, to get information from these companies. I know I have spent a long time on the phone trying to tease out what exactly they're spraying on these lawns, getting into the air. You were a pesticide applicator yourself, so you probably know quite well what the restrictions are to using it, like if the wind speed is a certain amount. But I know that I have witnessed lawn chemical companies applying their poisons when the wind speed brings that odor onto my own property. You know, the um, very interesting point, and I'm glad you brought that up, because with a pesticide, if you can smell it, you have been exposed. You don't have to be on the property. You don't have to come in contact with it. Many of you, in fact, most of you, have probably walked through a garden center or a big box store 
and smelled that smell when you go into the garden center section. That is pesticide. That is an exposure that you're receiving inside of that store. The same thing is happening out in your neighborhood. When you can smell it, there is an exposure. You're absolutely right. I will tell you that by law in most states, that every one of those companies that comes and sprays pesticides is supposed to have a specimen label in the truck for whatever is in that spray tank to be produced at any time to be shown, you know, to document what is happening. So that is in pesticide regulation at the state level. Is it always followed? No. You have mentioned the company specifically that goes out and does that, and I just worked with a city in New Jersey where that company has a contract with 100 municipalities. Mm. And because we made a request to find out what was happening, I was even shocked at the laundry list of chemicals that were being used on these public spaces. And they just listed, and they were actually making a chemical application up to four times a year for a single weed. And that is just marketing to generate revenue. And so much of the world of pesticides and synthetics is revenue-driven. And if we stop and think back in the day when clover was a good guy of being a legume and the ability to fix atmospheric nitrogen uh, and put nitrogen in the soil for our lawns, so clover was part of every grass seed mix prior to World War II. Post-World War II, all of a sudden, an industry started to develop these products and they came to us and said clover was not a good guy, it's a bad guy, it's a weed, and we have a product to take it out of there. They also just happened to have a synthetic bag of nitrogen because we we just lost all of that when we killed the weed. So when I talk about pesticide use and that kind of uh, situation, it simply is follow the money. It's corporations marketing product to do certain things in the landscape, and when you think about it, The expectation that the general public has for the American lawn is an expectation that was created by an industry in the 1950s to sell product. Wow. Let me take one break, Chip, because we're halfway through. I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Chip Osborne. He is the president of Osborne Organics and founder of the Organic Landscape Association. He knows that beautiful, healthy grass can be grown without the use of pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. He is dedicated to helping communities and individual homeowners learn how and why to change their policies. I want to get back to some of those ingredients again because I have struggled so much to find out what exactly am I being exposed to. And I have a friend who happened to find a receipt on a lawn that had been treated. And I was able to look through and see exactly what was in that product. And I saw 2,4-D and dicamba. So this is the same company that says, oh, we're not using glyphosate. Don't worry. But they're using a product called True Power 3 and Mecoprop P, fancy names for two toxic chemicals, 2,4-D and dicamba. And dicamba, we are seeing in agricultural areas, creating massive destruction through drift. So that is what I experienced in my own home garden, on my natives and on my vegetables. What can you say about some of these individual chemicals that are used in these mixes? Well, so much of those that you mentioned are herbicides. Those are the weed killers. So in in lawns or in lawn management, grass management, we might be using 
herbicides as weed killers. We might be using insecticides. We could possibly, in certain regions of the country, be using fungicides. They're all pesticides. Pesticides is the umbrella term. You mentioned Mecoprop and 2,4-D and Dicamba, basically all bad actors. The thing that we really need to focus on is you mentioned that the name was something three. That means it's a three-way chemical cocktail. And in that bottle is the active ingredient of Dicamba, of 2,4-D and Mecoprop. And that's all that's ever been tested. The balance of that container is inert ingredients, which in many cases are more toxic than the pesticides themselves, the active ingredient themselves. They're there to make the pesticides stronger. They are not tested. We don't know what they are. That's protected by trade secret laws. But the big concern is that no one has ever tested the synergistic effect of those three chemicals together in that bottle. And the reason they put three in a bottle is because that one spray will kill up to 28 different weeds. Now, I venture to say that the average American lawn does not have 28 different weeds, and it may have two or three, but yet we are routinely and without concern and without thinking about it, allowing people to put down these chemical cocktails that have never seen testing to this point. So that's really the bottom line problem is they load it up knowing that whatever's out there, they're going to blast it out of the way and they're going to move on. And the half-life of that synergistic mixture, we don't even really know what that is because it's never fully been determined. Yeah. I walk around my neighborhood in the springtime and I'm hoping to get the luscious aroma of lilacs and crab apples and all of the blooming, beautiful bushes and flowers And too often I get this acrid aroma. And I'm so glad you mentioned that if you smell it, you're being exposed. You absolutely are. And people don't think of that. They just think that they're not handling it. They're not touching. But when pesticides are assessed for their toxicity to the human population, they are assessed for oral toxicity, meaning ingestion, dermal toxicity, meaning skin absorption, and inhalation toxicity by breathing in the compound. Well, and you know, it's interesting. There is a a cancer group here in my community, very well-known and respected group of physicians that treat individuals with cancer, and even their lawn is sprayed. Because when I ride my bicycle by their clinic, I get that scent, and I think, surely the medical staff would know better. That is actually one of the biggest disconnects that is out there, and it always flabbergasts me when I run into that. I've had discussions with hospitals over the years on turf and landscape. I was part of a project with Jay Feldman, Executive Director of Beyond Pesticides, on a healthy hospitals program in Maryland where we did inside and outside the building. But I had the same situation, Melinda, where I was with my partner and she was struggling with cancer and we went to Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, one of the leading hospitals in the world. And outside of one of the buildings, we had to walk right by the little yellow flag that said pesticides have been applied. So here we were going inside the building to be treated for a cancer. And we know that 93% of cancers are environmental. So only 7% are generally hereditary. So 
they are environmental exposures. So here we're walking by a lawn that had been sprayed with who knows what because it wasn't on the label. And the bigger disconnect is that one of the companies that makes a whole slew of insecticides and lawn care pesticides also is a manufacturer of pharmaceuticals and chemotherapy. So we have one corporation that's got both ends of the spectrum covered, and that is a big disconnect, I think. Yeah. You know, people seem to be so consumed with this idea that, oh my gosh, we've got invasive plants and we've got to kill them. We've got to have this perfect lawn. I know you have successfully transitioned over 32,000 acres more now, I'm sure, to an organic method, your organic method. Tell me, how do we make that shift? When I'm speaking to a neighbor who's using the toxic chemical stew, what can I say to them to get them to transition to a more organic method, and what does it look like? Well, it really begins with education. I intersect with everyone on the spectrum. But, you know, we would have the group that we might call, let's say, for lack of a better word, organically inclined. And, you know, those folks are pretty easy to be made aware of some of these issues that we're speaking about. The other group is a little bit more of an issue. And at one point, I was speaking to a lot of garden clubs in the early days before my work actually went national. And I I had a little more time. And garden club ladies back in the day from the, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s were generally big pesticide users. And you know that when Monsanto developed Roundup 40 years ago, one of the first marketing things they did was make a $1 million endowment to the National Garden Club Association, and every president got a case of Roundup to give to all their members. Wow. So, you know, those people still like, please don't take my chemicals away. So that is a more educational outreach. But when I talk to groups like that, and if I get 50 people in a room, and I know that 40 of them are diehard pesticide enthusiasts, let's say, simply telling some of the things I've just told you on what we don't know, and they didn't know them. And then all of a sudden, they have that aha moment, and the light bulb goes off, and maybe I really haven't been told the full story. So it is a matter of education. I always try to do it in a non-alarmist way. It just simply state the facts. I will have to tell you that now that I'm pretty close to 70 years old, I'm not quite as patient anymore. And I come right out and say, this is what you don't know. And this is what the dangers are. So it all does begin with education. And we're looking for a systems change. We've all been told to manage our landscapes by using product. We go out and buy product and we put it down and it kills a weed or it makes the grass grow. It kills an insect. But what we're really looking at trying to do now is educate people to manage their lawn as a system. And that system is everything you can see above ground, meaning the blades of grass, but most importantly, what you don't see below the ground. And that is the living microbial fraction. And we're just going back to nature. We're working in harmony with what nature put in place. And we have to get by the mentality that we need to continually go to war with nature. And we have to understand that if we feed those microbes in the soil, which is very inexpensive to do, and we get that soil in a very healthy way, it's going to grow a strong stand of grass, which will, in many cases, outcompete most all weed pressures. And I will just enhance that by saying that every university in the United States that has a turf management program 
in curriculum will make the statement that a healthy, vigorously growing stand of grass goes a long way towards naturally suppressing and eliminating insect, weed, and disease pressures. Hmm. Well, we're getting into garden season now. Everybody's grass is probably just about greening up around the same time. How can we help people find individuals like yourself? What do we ask for? What are the key questions in finding a responsible lawn care provider who isn't going to poison kids, pets, birds, beneficial insects, soil microbes, and so on? Well, it really does fall to each and every one of us as consumers to take the first step and reach out to a landscaper and ask if they offer organic services. Now, let me say that organic services or an organic lawn program does not mean just swapping synthetic fertilizers for organic ones and swapping a synthetic pesticide for an organically approved material. It goes deeper than that. It's about feeding the soil and feeding the microbes. If enough consumers request of their landscape contractors organic services, that's going to make them think twice about whether or not they need to seek the appropriate education in order to do this. They've learned how to do it conventionally. Now they have to learn how to do it organically. So it's not as simple for these folks in the industry to simply move over into an organic program without at least making the effort to try to get some degree of education. And that's one of my biggest focuses now is to educate the landscape industry. That's what the Organic Landscape Association is poised to do. I've been doing that for almost the past 20 years here in the Northeast with the Connecticut NOFA Organic Land Care Program. That's the Northeast Organic Farmers Association Organic Land Care Program, educating the industry. In many parts of the country, it is lagging significantly behind where we are here in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. So we are focusing our efforts to try to train more practitioners in all regions of the country so that we can have a reasonable body of the industry able to respond to the consumer and provide organic services. Yeah. Well, you've got a fabulous website, which I will provide, osborneorganics.com, for our listeners, as well as the Beyond Pesticides website, where our listeners can see many of your excellent presentations that you've done over the years at our annual forum. There are some websites that show herbicide injury on plants. And I think it's important for people to be able to recognize what drift looks like in the home garden. So I'll provide a couple of links to that. We just have one minute left, Chip, and I've got to close. Is there one final message you want to give to our listeners? I think my final message is that if folks have heard this today, to go out and talk about this with one or two or three other people. And that is how things are going to begin to change, because as consumers, we are in the position to both change what we find in the garden centers for material, and there is plenty of material available if a supplier goes to source it out for organically approved pesticides and organic fertilizers. So we can influence the marketplace on product we have available, and we can influence the landscape industry by being proactive and reaching out and saying, I want these services, and I'm looking to have them provided for me. Thank you, Chip. 
I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Chip Osborne, president of Osborne Organics, founder of the Organic Landscape Association, with decades of experience moving turf and gardens and landscapes from toxic to healthy. Thank you so much for being my guest, Chip. Thank you, Melinda. It's been my pleasure.